when the Cold War ended. The Washington establishment felt it had prevailed in a world historical struggle. But within a quarter of a century, the United States ended up with gaping inequality, permanent war, and moral confusion. Join Harper's Magazine and Book Culture on Columbus on Tuesday, January 7th at 7 p.m. for a discussion with Andrew Basevich, author of The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. Learn more at bookculture.com event. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Some evolutionary psychologists argue that, because most people are descended from humans that killed other humans to survive, fantasies about murder are extremely common, which might be part of the reason why podcasts and books about true crime are so damn addictive. But as is true of many other aspects of human psychology, the internet can very quickly turn a base impulse into a reality. As Brian Merchant describes in the January 2020 cover story of Harper's Magazine, there are active murder markets on the dark web, and they have been responsible for at least one death. He follows the story of Alexis Stern, a shy young woman in Minnesota who, at age 18, discovered that someone had put a hit out on her. I spoke with Merchant about Alexis's case, the problem law enforcement has with investigating or treating such threats seriously, and the proliferation of these markets. But before we get to that conversation, I wanted to share what else is in the issue. I asked Chris Beha about his choices for this issue of Harper's, his first as editor, such as why he chose to put Merchant's story on the cover and what other features we can expect under his tenure. Well, in terms of this story, um, it's just, it's a great story. Um, and in fact, we, we have a piece in this issue by Greg Jackson um, about the news, which uh, in, to some degree questions this ethos that um, the, what makes something news is, is that it's inherently interesting. But basically, this is just a great story. It's a story that hasn't really been reported anywhere else because as I said most of these um, markets are hoaxes uh, most people treat them that way um, they think it is sort of alarmist to be suggesting that there are people having hits put out on them on the web but now it really is happening um, and Brian spoke with uh, a young woman who um, was listed on one of these sites and uh, she the local police reached out to her and um, it completely upended her life as you can imagine so um, there's real human interest here and to her um, it doesn't matter much that mostly these are hoax that you know somebody paid five thousand dollars to have her killed and and um, it may be that that's not going to result in someone else wanting to go out and kill her, but that's not a ton of comfort for her. So it's it's a worthwhile story to be reporting about. Sure. As far as the issue as a whole, there's obviously a lot of continuity with Harper's issues of the past. I don't plan um, a big reset of the magazine. I've worked at the magazine for a long time, and I've loved putting this magazine out over the past decade plus I've been here, and I want to keep basically doing that. Um, but there are some small things. There's a wonderful piece by a writer named David Gordon in this issue that is about the Worcester Group, the um, 
downtown experimental theater group founded by Spalding Gray and uh, Elizabeth Lecomte. It's it's uh, largely about Lecomte, who is still the director of the group uh, 40 plus years after its founding. And um, it's a long treatment. Uh, David went to months and months of the Worcester Group's rehearsals as they developed one of their pieces in rehearsal, which is sort of how they work. Um, and he was there three to four days a week for four or five months. It's a piece of cultural writing, but it's also uh, at the same time the kind of in-depth, long-term reporting that not a lot of places do. So my background is as a literary critic and as a fiction writer, I'm very, very interested in literature and culture more generally. So the, the, the points of emphasis, which aren't really shifts for the magazine, but the points of emphasis for me are going to be cultural coverage and great writing. And that brings me to Greg Jackson's piece uh, that I mentioned before. Greg, uh, is the author of a wonderful short story collection called Prodigals that came out a few years ago. Um, his piece in this issue is a nonfiction piece. It's a, an, an essay about the news, um, and it's wonderfully well-written. Um, it's, it's very sharply argued, but it's also just a pleasure to read, and that's a big part of what I hope people are going to be getting out of the magazine while I'm editor. There's also a short story by Susan Choi, who I believe won the National Book Award. Yes, that was, um, she won the award just as we were going to press. In fact, we had to, uh, we had to call our printers in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania and get them to hold the presses so we could change <laughs> her bio from uh, was nominated for the National Book Award to she won the National Book Award. So obviously I didn't know that was going to be happening when I acquired the story, but the, 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 novel for which you won the award, Trust Exercise, is a wonderful, wonderful novel. And um, after I read it, I reached out to let her know how much I admired it. And um, we were very excited to have a story from her. I think it's a great story. Is there anything else of note? I mean, they're all of note, aren't they? Yes. How can you, how can you love it one is, child more than the other? I is, mean, really. Yeah. Uh, 96 pages of slim bang excitement. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, is that fair? Can we keep that? Yes. Yes. And now, here's Brian Merchant. Let's start with Jim Bell, who is really, he's one of the most fascinating figures in your story, who's this anarcho-libertarian who conceived of an online assassination market back in 1995. And how would you say the reality of the assassination market is different from the vision that he put forward? And how does that map onto the disappointing story of the Internet at large? Right. So Jim Bell was a fringe member of what you could call sort of an already fringe group um, on the early web known as cypherpunks. And this was a group that concerned itself uh, with sort of extreme Internet freedom. They were really sort of, to varying degrees, libertarian, anarcho-libertarian, really just kind of all about this idea that the internet would sort of liberate people from these structures and laws and limitations of society as it was. And there was a famous sort of email list, uh, cypherpunk email list, where most of this argumentation and debate was taking place. 
And Jim Bell was interested in the scene, although he wasn't originally a, a, a key member. But he was uh, a very bright guy, uh, an Intel engineer um, with a background, I believe, in, in, in chemical engineering. And he uh, had this idea after reading about some of the early sort of theoretical work that was being done on cryptocurrencies, which we were decades away from Bitcoin or anything like that existing in reality, but there had been some Scientific American articles and some early research sort of done around this idea that you could create an encrypted anonymous currency that could be traded without anyone knowing uh, who the other parties were and could exist entirely online in a distributed fashion. And he came up with this idea that once this existed, you could create completely anonymous murder markets, basically. And in an essay called Assassination Politics, Jim Bell laid out the foundations for his idea, which was if you had sort of like a crowdsource list of public figures that were in any way doing... Uh, ill towards the public. Jim Bell, very anti-government, very sort of aggressively anti-IRS, anti-federal government, on up. He really just thought most of these public officials were corrupt, they were always acting against the public interest, and therefore they had to be removed from office. So assassination politics was by and large conceived as a mechanism for removing public people from office, especially those who would go against the public's will. So he thought that if you had an anonymous cryptocurrency, totally encrypted, that if you built a market where you could have people say on one side who they wanted to see dead, and then they could sort of pledge various amounts of cryptocurrency towards that cause, towards different figures, as the amount would accrue, again, it's all anonymous, so nobody knows who's pledging the money. Uh, You don't have to worry about it being traced back to you because you're pledging this theoretical anonymous cryptocurrency, and the amounts tick up then somebody can make a prediction, quote unquote prediction, on the other side of the market saying, this is when I believe this public figure will die. And that would be totally encrypted too. It would be hashed into the system with a specific key. And if that prediction comes to pass, indeed, public figure X dies on the day that this predictor, quote unquote, lodged that prediction, then, then the keys would unlock the transaction and the money would, 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 would change hands completely anonymously. No one would ever know who was pledging the money or who made the prediction or how the money, you know, where it went. So it would, in theory, be totally, tr- totally untrackable, untra- totally untraceable. And of course, lurking in the background of it all is the only way that you can be sure of when exactly somebody's going to die is you, you would kill them yourself. So it was a, uh, you know, an assassination marketplace. It was a murder market. And it was very nefarious in its its design. Very, uh, it's just one of those sort of ideas that if you imagine reading about it in the 90s, before we'd sort of been inundated with, you know, what all the ills and dark spots of the web, it would be something that would certainly send chills down your spine. And it did, yeah. The FBI immediately took note of this, and so there's a whole saga that goes on with Jim's Be- Jim Bell. But but this idea became very famous in cypherpunk circles, which is the, the important sort of crux of 
of Jim Bell's role in this story. And it kind of took on a life of its own. Jim Bell has been in and out of prison for related reasons. And a lot of people think that it's kind of sort of this Al Capone situation where, you know, the FBI really wanted to get him for something related to this because they just thought this idea was so dangerous. And in the early 90s, nobody knew how seriously to take any of this stuff. And it just seemed scary. So he went to prison first for failing to pay taxes, staging this sort of prank stunt uh, stink bomb at the IRS offices, which was only a year. But then they got him for basically looking up FBI agents on a public database, which they called stalking and harassing. And he went away for another 10 years. So anyways, I guess that's all kind of ancillary. But this idea has sort of undergirded a lot of the more extreme currents in in dark web and and sort of uh, fringe web culture. People have tried to build systems like his. People have, once Bitcoin became real, you know, they made assassination marketplaces and put Obama, Ben Bernanke, um, you know, five years ago, there, there was a kind of a, a famous, again, it was mostly seen as a stunt, but they actually proved that you could kind of do it, you know, no one died. But it, it just, again, it factors into this um, sort of Wild West, uh, dark frontier of, of, of the internet. And in, in some ways, that fear that was stirred up and has been sort of stoked for a couple decades is what our scammer, who's, who goes by Yura most of the time, as he's this you know, dark web scammer who builds fake murder for hire websites uh, on the dark web, and thus sort of exploits fears stoked by the media by you know the by all the intrigue going on around um, these cases and people sort of have this idea that darknet murder is a real or potentially real phenomenon so you have this small subset of people who seek it out and try to do it for real and yura who runs this scam website basically fleeces them and, and takes their money right and i mean obviously there's you know, this was an idea, and then the technology emerged to make this possible. But all of this technology that makes this possible has existed for some time. And essentially, all it takes is encrypted web browsing through the Tor network, for example, and a currency that can't easily be traced. But as you say, a threshold has been crossed recently with the first documented dark web hit. Yeah. What has changed? Well, so I need to preface this answer by saying that we still don't know exactly how much things have actually changed or how widely those changes will be felt. A lot of this is cultural and and a lot of these different marketplaces and whether or not they are taken seriously will be dependent on sort of regional factors, whether people are comfortable using the dark web, whether they've used it a lot in, in, in the background. So basically, that said, so Chris Montero, sort of the white hat, quote unquote, you know, good guy hacker in the piece who, who managed to hack into Yura, the scammers, darknet database, and basically pilfer from him the list of people who have hired his uh, assassins, believing it to be real, and paying real money to see a real person killed expecting that to be the outcome and thus marking themselves as, you know, somebody who should be investigated by law enforcement. In most cases, if you've paid 
$6,000 to $20,000 to see somebody killed, that is a pretty good indicator that you are serious. Even if the website that you're doing this uh, arranging on is a hoax, that should be taken seriously. So Chris Montero has this list of all of these people who have done these done these killings. And, and, and what he says on the matter that you had brought up is that it takes time for trust to develop in a market. At the beginning of the dark web, it was totally anything goes. You could order, yes, murder. You could order drugs. You could order rhino horn ground up for powder if that was your thing. You could order anything. And there was a tiny fraction of uh, a possibility that you would actually get it. So a lot of this stuff was kind of blown off. But slowly, first first it was drugs. People found ways to verify that the marketplaces were starting to work, that the product offered was delivered to, to said client. So there became some instruments of verification that people started to trust on the dark web. And so you saw the rise of things like the Silk Road, which is probably the most famous darknet um, bazaar mm-hmm. or, or marketplace. And once people had trust in that market, they would be much more willing to part with their, with their Bitcoin or whatever other cr- cryptocurrency they were going to use. So once you have once you have trust in the market, then you have people willing to procure the 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 goods for real. So as Chris Montero says in the piece, it used to be that getting rhino horn, which is really, you know, expensive and dangerous and it's sort of in demand um, in a lot of sort of elites in 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 China for instance where it's seen as this status symbol to be able to have have rhino horn and it's believed to be sort of a a stimulant or an aphrodisiac or, or or what have you but it takes you know getting it from their rhinos are, are endangered it's very difficult to get a real rhino horn so it's a really <laughs> high value ticket item and people used to fall for these hoaxes all the time but now guess what they're tracking real rhino horn getting procured from the dark web so you're seeing various criminal enterprises migrating into reality and the fear is that actual murder for hire will too and it just it would it would it would take a number of things happening before that would happen somewhere like the the u.s because the the established case that was confirmed while i was reporting out the story for harper's was in in russia and i spoke to a couple experts who are not quoted in the piece, but they emphasize that Russia has a very different sort of relationship to the dark web than uh, than users in the U.S. do. And that is that there has been this very normalized sort of protocol around what they call drop boxes and, and, and buying goods on that. So you basically buy something on the dark web and you include sort of like a GPS location and that, and then you go and you find this Dropbox, and that's where it is. Mm-hmm. So people are very used to things actually working this way. In the, they have sort of tangible evidence that it works. That again, it's like Amazon Locker, right? Like an Amazon Locker <laughs> for PCP or whatever. Uh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So very bleak. But then, so what? What happened in, in the in the in Russia was it was not on one of your uh, one of his, which are like Besa mafia or Kimura hitmen all these sites are very explicitly designed to look sort of badass and sort of looking like oh there's like people <laughs> with guns and gangsters and it's like almost comical how you know over the top it is 
Uh, and you know, you're supposed to go and you click what you want done to, um, you know, a person, do you want a beating? Do you want a stabbing? Do you want a murder? Do you want to whatever? There's like a little menu and then you order it from, from Yura as you would like order an item on eBay or something, but the, the actual killing. And I think, you know, I can say here without totally verifying it, that it looks like there may have been another one, a second killing that was arranged by, and this is what's a little bit scarier, as somebody who was actually offering Hitman services on these marketplaces. The first confirmed Darknet killing happened when basically two, somebody um, made kind of an offer for basically saying like, if, if you can, you know, off this person, here's how much we'll be willing to pay. And presumably these people met up over the, over the dark net and discussed the transaction. And then it did turn out two kids, they were young, they were like teenagers or late, you know, late teenagers. And they, and they did it for money. And this was a, this was a police investigator, somebody who was investigating corruption locally and they killed her um it, so brazen so they killed her and then they went to a rock concert that night and they were <sighs> they were uh captured on on surveillance footage they were not from the ci- the city it would have been very hard to to, ca- to to catch them had they not shown their faces on surveillance cameras because again there's no, there would be no motive. It's untraceable. They didn't live locally and they were extremely sloppy and dumb. So they, they did get caught, but it, it does sort of lead to the question of whether or not this has happened before successfully, because it, in a place where corruption is more rampant in a place where there's, you know, no knowledge of dark net matters by the local law enforcement, it's entirely possible. And again, I talked to a criminologist who studies hitmen for hire and his point was very clear the price of life in economically depressed areas is very cheap and people are willing to do murders for remarkably low sums of money if they are in economically desperate situations and if they have some familiarity with you know that particular trade a lot of former prisoners who have heard a lot about this culture wind up wind up in this sort of line of quote-unquote work. So the fear, again, is that these two forces, the normalization of darknet marketplaces and economic depression and desperation converge and lead to some, which, you know, most of the time, I imagine it will be rather sloppy. It will not be this Jim Bell sort of like crowdsource the murder and then some skilled hitman like comes for, uh, you know, a, a a president or a governor or something, it's going to be messier and sloppier and carried out by economically desperate people. As this is normalized, do you envision it being almost more of psychological terrorism that, you know, maybe, again, you, you know, mastermind 365, he he or she, let's keep up the pretense, uh, this person ordered a killing in a moment of rage or of weakness. But for Alexis Stern, who this person wants dead, she's terrorized by this threat. And it's a terror that might never go away. She dropped out of school. She quit her job. She already had a lot of sort of issues around anxiety, which, I mean, I can't imagine what 
having a hit put on you does to you emotionally. So putting aside the actual killing, this could become almost a different situation where it's just the notion of someone is out to get you is more powerful and more destructive than actually killing the person. Certainly for Alexis Stern, it is. And a number of these cases, it it is. You know, it's an incredibly unsettling and disturbing thing to have to live with, especially at this point in time when, again, everybody is grappling with how seriously to take this. Law enforcement has not taken it very seriously. There's signs that they're starting to now because... Two people who have been on this list are dead now, having been killed, in one case, by the person who hired the illusory hitman, and in another case, maybe himself, although like that case is an, is an entirely different situation, and we could go into that later if we want to, but the fact is, is that knowing that sometimes this results in real death does create this psychological terror. I mean, Alexis Stern was 18 years old when the police told her somebody has paid thousands of dollars to have you dead, to see you dead, killed by an assassin on the dark net. You know, the police are not in really a position right now to say, well, you know, this is probably somebody just blowing off steam or don't worry about this because A, they don't know and, and nobody knows. Uh, it, it, it's so diffuse and so ambiguous as to the nature of, of this desired violence that it does. It just sort of reverts to this gravity of, of, of terror. And, and that's what she's felt for years. And the police have not done much, the FBI. And again, I the, it's so opaque and they're so unwilling to talk openly about what's going on that it's hard to tell whether they've been really working around the clock to try to find a way to address this threat or if they've just kind of thrown up their hands and said, well, in this case, our suspect is living in another country across a body of water and it doesn't seem like it's going to be a problem and it would be very difficult to extradite him, certainly, so maybe we just won't do anything at all. And that certainly seems to be what has happened is that just they just have not taken seriously this case despite telling her that they would and again you know that calculus may be on the fact that she is maybe not in grave bodily danger from a specific threat from a specific outside person but this is psychological torment day in day out every day that they do not act she wonders is this guy going to find a way to kill me she's 18 she's 19 now she doesn't know how, you know, the, the these markets on the dark net work or she doesn't, you know, would would you do any of us? I don't know if a hit was put out on me, you know, I might be able to say like, look, I've looked at the vast majority of these cases, nothing ever happens, but at the same time, it's a sign that someone wants you dead and if they are willing to pay thousands to do it, maybe they'll find another way. Yeah. So it just gets it's in some ways even more disturbing than, you know, finding out that somebody had expressed an intent just to, just to kill you in, in, in person, someone you knew or something, because it gets lodged into this ether that's part fantasy, part, uh, it's just totally ambiguous. It's, there's no, you know, there's no way to, to, to parse 
what's real, what's a threat, how urgent the threat is, whether or not somebody is going to be coming for me uh, that found this on another dark place market that found an offer to, to do this on another real dark place market because it is getting realer. You know, it is just, it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like that failure, because there seems to be multiple failures on the end of law enforcement, and there's like stovepiping of information, there are jurisdiction problems, investigators are not searching what could be potential evidence like the Facebook messages in uh, Alexis's case. Like, But there's also, it seems like there might be a generational problem where the law enforcement doesn't understand it's a generational thing right where people older people think oh this is just like the internet is a public square Mm -hmm. and they don't understand that it is absolutely not a public square and that these things that this happened once is too many times so other than agencies being more aware of the existence of these sites is there something you think they can really do about this i mean Is there a way to kind of regulate this? I mean, again, a generational issue, but government really doesn't seem to understand the internet very well, let alone the dark web. So is there a way to kind of prevent, to to scale this back in any way? So, yes, I would say that there is still this deeply outmoded sense in a lot of, you find it in law enforcement and, and certain federal and municipal bureaucracies that like things that happen on the internet are less real somehow that they are, you know, of a different stripe. They denote different intent. And there is some shade, some small shade as a couple of the examples in in the piece point out that, that that is actually possibly true, but they are not attuned to the nuances and the full spectrum of intent that you can find on the internet, on these marketplaces, on social media, on everything that uh, young people especially are interfacing with these days. So I would say that that explains a little bit of it. I would say, I think bureaucratic ineptitude and not wanting to engage what would surely be a complex, prolonged, interdepartmental, transnational operation in some of these cases sort of stymies the will to actually look into it. I would say that that more than anything is just the difficulty and the resources required to look into these cases. Sort of they do a quick calculus and say, look, like this is bad. Yes. But the chances that somebody is going to wind up dead from this is low. So they do a quick calculation and end up sitting on their hands as a result. So they certainly that's inexcusable they can't do that we need to find some way to sort of light a fire under the agencies to do more for instance i think there should be some sort of protocol that streamlines Mm -hmm. who deals with this when you know it's certainly cross states a lot of times we've i see that a ton where uh you know looking at these kill lists and figuring out who was making the uh, the assassination attempt. A lot of times it's local, but other times it's from different states, from country to country. So there's just has to be an assumption that we need to, to streamline a way to process these threats and investigate them that takes into account the fact that you're going to be doing this across state or country lines. So there, there does need to be at least whether that is a specific bureau in the FBI, because it's not just going to be this hoax 
marketplace. There are going to be other attempts on other markets. There are going to be other displays of intent by would-be murderers or would-be assassination hirers. There are going to be other sort of inputs in this system in, in all sorts of different ways that that are beyond just what we even know about now. So we really need to start forming some sort of an apparatus that is capable of collecting them and, and acting on them. Right now, it's a mess. Who knows whether it's going to be the local police, the FBI, the DHS, <laughs> ICE. Who knows who's actually going to field a case in a given... Uh, in Alexis's example, it's all all three. And they've all been kind of playing hot potato and, you know, it seems to me passing the buck and making various, you know, errors along the way. And it's just because, again, they just there's no clear protocol for how to deal with this. And if we we don't want to see more names crossed off that list, then we really need to need to sort of get our ducks in a row. And I mean, at the end of the piece, you write that the Department of Homeland Security have finally started investigating people who have put out hits on Euro's websites. What have there been any developments with those investigations that you're aware of since this went to press? So yeah, since this went to press, I don't know specifically if there have, but since so what I will say to kind of follow up that that, that sort of long torrent of frustration <laughs> is that there's finally one bureau, one bureau, and it is in Minnesota. It's the Minnesota branch of the DHS that now has a desk and at least one agent and maybe a small staff that is working with Montero, again, the white hat hacker to, um, to go through these, these names. And the reason she's doing that, I think, is because just randomly, a lot of these cases have happened in the Great Lakes region. The one murder that actually did take place where a husband murdered his wife and tried to make it look like a suicide. He had hired Euros, fake assassins, and really gone into explicit detail as to how he wanted to see his wife killed, pretending he was someone else. He was this IT guy, just absolute, absolute monster. But Also he, the head of a church. Know, also, the the a deacon, yeah. like an elder in a church, which is and that was part of it. Why he felt he couldn't get divorced and had to instead murder his wife, which is just right. extremely cool. Very yeah, Midwest, great. Yeah. <laughs> right? You got to respect the church mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not, you know, not go against the church. So you'd rather murder than than uh, divorce. Uh, just just the most intense story probably this this whole mess but so he they found you know the bitcoin keys that corresponded to the marketplace on his local hard drive again they had they had suspected him from the beginning for other reasons because it just did not look like a suicide it it was it was pretty clearly staged and he called the cops and just did not seem credible from the beginning just a horrifying person all around you know there's they have audio of the call when the when the first responders and the police came to the scene they had they 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 had um audio going and at one point his son who's has just walked in to see his mother with a bullet in her head he says uh, what's going to happen now daddy are you going to remarry and he laughs and he says oh i don't know <laughs> and it's just like it's the most Jesus chilling Christ. yeah oh. um 
and he so they they pegged him because they again they already had him sort of as a suspect and that when they raided his house they matched the bitcoin keys on his computer to the ones from chris montero's logs that were used to make the transactions that they were able to determine that it was him who had tried to try to make this hit so that that was in minnesota um alexis is in minnesota uh, there was another case in Illinois. So I think somebody regionally got the sense that this was starting to be a problem and let's take it seriously. So there's at least one desk and it's, it's oddly a regional desk of the uh, branch of the DHS. And it, I think she's actually an ICE agent, which because ICE is a sub uh, division of, of DHS. And so she's taking this on and she has, uh, I think she did get one more arrest so far made somebody in Buffalo who had ordered a killing on, on the same dark. But again, this is one hoax marketplace. It's the biggest one that we know of. It's the one that has the longest roll of names on the list, but nobody else is sort of policing threats that are made elsewhere or offhand on different marketplaces. Ones that are less you know, tailored specifically to murder. Uh, there are marketplaces that are broader that are for everything. And then you'll, you'll sometimes see requests for killings and things on there. And again, most of the time until recently, people have just sort of waved them off, but now we have reason to believe at least that if, you know, no one's actually going to do it, even then it's still worth taking the, the threat or the attempted order, you know, seriously. If you look at something like, 8chan, which is now 8kun, you know, no one wanted to take that seriously until there was literally a huge public movement to be like, hey, this has happened three times. This cannot happen again. And, you know, people want to act like, oh, it's free speech, perhaps because the foundation of the internet was so tied up in this very specific tech utopianism with certain libertarian undercurrents that, you know, you should be able to do whatever you want online. And really, it only leads to very dangerous, hateful, deadly situations like this. And, you know, somebody like Chris Montero is, he's a a vigilante. Like, he's just sort of like providing vigilante justice as best that he can, or at least trying to hold these people to account, or more specifically, the owner, Yura, to account. What is he up to now? And uh, are there other like white hats like him fighting this new form of crime? Are there other Batmans out there, please? <laughs> Not, I mean, Chris Montero is a very singular person. I don't know how he lives with this. I mean, it's been years now that he's been sort of dealing with this on and off and it, it, I mean it, totally justifiably like he he can't do it all the time he's got a full-time job he doesn't it's it's the equivalent of a hobby it's an after work project for him so imagine like doing your 8 to 10 hour day job going home and then trying to alert law enforcement about new murder threats on the dark web it's exhausting i mean i spent you know about a year dealing with all this stuff and a few months in like i thought i was going to have a panic attack it's just so the other thing that is true and 
extremely alarming about this story, and again, I mentioned in this in the piece, but the the sort of online disinhibition effect David mm-hmm. Suler talks about, and it's pretty widely accepted at this point that at least in some levels this this happens is that people are willing to behave and say different things and act differently online than they are in real life. So that means under uh, sort of a veil of anonymity, people are just really willing to open up and it's just you see the dark, the absolute darkest side of of humanity when you are looking at a log of how somebody wants to kill their ex-wife or wants to kill this guy who wronged him in business or kidnap this ex-girlfriend or whatever it is. And they're willing to go into just absolute detail. And it's just absolutely blood curdling. Just, it just, it makes you sick to your stomach. Mm -hmm. Like it is, it's, it's totally awful that, I mean, you can imagine most of these people, like if they were meeting a, like a prospective hitman, or I mean, most people wouldn't uh, that are on this list would never have the guts to do that. Of course, in not. real life. And again, online, you know, situations are opening it up. The anonymity and and the ease of which you can click and do this are making it or opening the door to 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 a lot of these conversations. And that's another thing that's happening. And there is, you know, what I hinted at earlier is that in some of these cases, I really do believe it is just a guy blowing off steam. Just saying, like, uh, in, in, in there's a case in England where a, a doctor uh, who had probably very seriously been swindled by his mm-hmm. his tax accountant uh, had someone had defrauded him, and he was in a rage, and he he's like, how do I kill this guy? And he but he didn't pay any money; he just kind of clicked the buttons, and then when he asked for money, he backed off, didn't do it. So that's a good example in the U.S. There's a guy in um, San Luis Obispo who paid less than $5 between three and $5 to kill his stepmom. Again, this is a mentally ill man who, who was upset. It was disturbed. He said he was drunk and he did this. Um, he didn't mean to do it. He didn't pay any more money and he ended up going to prison for three years. It's, it does become this matter of where do you sort of discern intent? It reminded me a lot of that story about the so-called cannibal cop in New York who mm. didn't actually commit any crimes, but he would go on these web forums and say the most disgusting and repulsive things uh, sometimes about, I think, people that he had liaised with, just like killing them and eating them. I want to, you know, and just it gave, and he, you know, was, I think, tried for attempted or, or murder or conspiracy or something like that. And he did get off because, again, he was just l- letting loose these extremely dark, thoughts on that this is how he was he never hurt anybody and maybe that applies to some fraction of these people again we know that it doesn't apply to all of them some of them pick it's up not gun. just this um depersonalization i think it's also the fact that you're in a room with other people who agree with you or they're encouraging something that would otherwise be totally taboo or difficult to do and they're they're all connected and so Again, to return to the falseness of the public square analogy, it's it's like you have designed this public square and there's only people just like right. you there and they're telling you, yes, it's good that you hate Jews or yes, you know, Mexicans are taking over this country. You, you really ought to do something about it. This is what I would do and you want to top it. Like it's really, it's untenable. It has to, again, there has to be some sort of intervention, but what that intervention could be given that, 
people don't understand the severity of this is really difficult and that there are always going to be places like or other services that are going to be like oh yeah yeah we'll take over we'll take over those servers it's fine we'll keep hosting this right yeah i do think that there it would work at this point given like that this is still sort of a fringe issue and a lot of these threats becoming more widespread or still speculative like a, a tiny bureau with a small staff could could do a lot that was well versed in you know this corner of the internet i mean the fbi yeah. does lots of work on the on the dark web they do it's just that that those bureaus are not interfacing properly with where these threats are wind up you know where they wind up being reported which is to like a local police department in suburban minnesota but there's a whole sort of you know there's a whole team of dark net savvy investigators who do stings on the dark web to find you know child porn hubs all the time they do right they do all sorts so we just need we need to sort of codify this threat a little bit i think because again right now the sheer number of cases to process is large but it's not that large it's not you know larger than you could see being assigned to a small team to investigate so i just think that some small moves could could and do then wonders. Finally, you know, now that some time has passed, how has your experience with these murder markets and seeing that just unbridled hatred towards another human being, whether said in the heat of the moment or just coming from a very deep, sincere place, how has it affected you to probe into this stuff? Are you glad that you did? Or is it something that you would have rather never known about well it was hard to live with for a while it was hard to have this database open on my desktop it was hard to try to i mean as i detail in the piece a little bit and i think more than i got around to detailing like i i went down the list myself because the at, at some point these were passed off to the fbi and the fbi ostensibly looked into to all of them and i was trying to investigate whether or not that was the case whether or not they actually did their due diligence so i started going down the list myself and calling everybody mm-hmm. that had been caught up in this and it turns out that a large number of them had never heard from the fbi in a meaningful way or had never heard from their local police in a meaningful way but there was still a hit out on yeah. their heads by somebody that they probably knew in their lives that had not been addressed. So I did my best to talk to a number of, of these people. And some of them, you know, most of them had no idea really what to make of it. I got hung up on, I, I got sort of dismissed. I don't think I made a single connection other than, other than Alexis with somebody who was like, Oh, I understand this. Thank you for contacting me. And I like, I wish the FBI would have told me or thank you for, for, for alerting me of this, I will address this. It was like, yeah, I got some weird call from the cops. They wanted me to come down to the station and I'm not going down to the station. Like, what do I, why, I'm not just going to walk in. The, what, why would I do that? Like a lot of, and a lot of these threats and, and ordered murders are taking place in more marginal, you know, marginalized communities. The cases that they really have gotten are, have been sort of more suburban about where they can clearly see that this like a line has been crossed. But in, in one case, there was an Instacart driver, a middle-aged woman of color who, yeah, the, um, the police called her and said, come down to the station. We have something to tell you. And she was like, 
you can come. Why don't we meet at a coffee shop? She's like, no, you have to come to the station. And she's like, what is this about? And they said, it's about like murder. For, and she's like, I, I'm not going to do that. And she, so, and, and meanwhile, so I tried to explain it to her, but she was like, you know what? Like, I don't, I don't know how to process this. Like, if it's my time, it's my time. And she basically hung up and I said, okay, <laughs> it's, it, it, it does really, again, speak to the failure of law enforcement to deal with this. But yeah, so yes, it, well, of course it was, it was incredibly disturbing. It was really, really sort of a direct portal into, again, the darkest extremities of the human consciousness. And it, I, I, you know, that Chris Montero is still doing this after years as a testament both to his dedication and to some nerves of steel, I guess. But I will not be done with this until Alexis gets some resolution. I law enforcement has failed her, has it failed her incredibly. I, you know, I don't know if if, well, if I should be saying this, but the the law enforcement basically told her because she talked to me that she had basically blown it that they weren't going to be able to get Adrian anymore and that she, she they weren't going to be able to protect her. And I was so furious, uh, and I tried to get in touch with, with the FBI, they wouldn't really, and the, or the, and the DHS, they wouldn't talk to me, but fortunately, one of the Harper's fact checkers was, and they said, that's absolutely not true. We had to close the case for different reasons, and it had nothing to do with you guys wording this story. So just the fact that they're willing to sort of blame outside factors f- for their failure to act and not act and not do more is absolutely infuriating to me. So I'm going to continue pushing this. And I understand there are maybe some stories being worked on in the UK locally where her alleged assailant and abuser lives. So hopefully that can motivate the NCA, which is the British version of the FBI and has been even worse than them somehow on dealing with these issues that is when I will be able to let this go. Once she sees some modicum of justice or some tangible results to further her well-being, she has just been victimized on every conceivable front, and it's horrifying. And that law enforcement has not done more when they have told her they would, and she has entrusted them with her safety, implicitly her psychological safety, is just... I won't be able to rest until that is in some way um, taken care of or, or, or addressed. There are so many different ways to comprehend the absolute failure of law enforcement. I mean, you can look at a case like what happens in black communities with police shootings, the way the police handle their own, or you could look at something like this and just see that there's some serious problems with law enforcement as it exists now and that you would want to put the onus on someone else, you would want to blame someone else for your failures is just another version of that. And, you know, the story has been getting some real traction, and I hope that it mobilizes people to really push for some sort of a holistic change in how law enforcement behaves. Well, I do too. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. 
To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 